Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. As always, I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today we have the honor of welcoming a guest I've been able to meet and hear speak on a number of occasions. He's an extremely intelligent man, yet he remains open to new ideas from those he surrounds himself with and even challenges his staff to not be afraid to fail because that's where genuine innovation often develops. Now, before we bring him in, we got to bring in our host, a man who recently did another run around the sun celebrating a birthday this week, at least the week we're recording this, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing good. How are things in Tennessee today? It's a little dreary today, but uh, it's very spring-like. It's been in the 70s the past couple of days, so it's been nice. All right, so so then I need to file a complaint with you. Okay. Uh, because as we're recording this, uh, Michigan is under a winter weather advisory, which is going to take place tomorrow. And uh, we're supposed to get like four to eight inches of uh, snow tomorrow. Uh, it's March. Well, we shouldn't be doing that. In the state of Tennessee, you wait five minutes and things change. So I'm sure it will snow or come ice or something like that before you know it. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. But hey, I'm excited about today. I, I had the opportunity to hang out with this guy uh, a month or so ago, uh, spend an evening with him. Uh, and I didn't do a lot of talking, I did a lot of listening. Uh, because, uh, like you said, he is an incredibly wise guy. So why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce him and bring him on. Let's get the conversation going here. Yeah, our guest today uh, served in the United States Army Military Police Corps from 1986 to 1990, where he attained the rank of sergeant. He also served for 25 years in the Knoxville Police Department, where he was chief of police for the last seven of those years. In June 2018, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam appointed him to serve as the ninth director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And just last June, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee appointed him to serve a second term as director, a term that will last through 2028. With a schedule that takes him from one end of the state to the other, we appreciate the time he's carved out for us today. It is our pleasure to welcome David Rausch to Between the Lines. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It's it's an honor to uh, to hang out with you and uh, uh, spend a little time uh, chatting about uh, about the business of of the business, <laughs> the business of the business. And, and you know, uh, for for you, business is busy right now. But it seems like it's always that way for you. It is. It is. Uh, there is a lot going on in the state of Tennessee. Uh, any of our listeners haven't looked at the state of Tennessee, uh, as Brent was saying, traveling from one end of the state to the other has a, a whole different meaning when we're talking about Tennessee than perhaps some other states. Oh, absolutely. Memphis to, to Mountain City is uh, is quite the traipse across the state. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's a good seven, eight hours if you want to go from one to the other. And uh, fortunately, there are times where I have uh, I have an asset that can get me there quicker if I need to. Yeah, that's good because you have to be intentional to get from one end of the state to the other. But uh, hey, let, let's start off. Let's talk about your army career. Uh, first of all, why army? I mean, not not that I'm questioning it because it's that's the best choice. But why army? <laughs> so uh, so the army gave me the best opportunity. Right. Uh, it's funny. So when I walked into the recruiter's office, I, I'm from a, a military family. My father served in the Navy. Um, I have uh, two brothers who served in the Navy and I have another brother who was in the Army. So I'm I'm from a very large uh, Catholic family. So there are there were 10 of us. And so uh, I'm number seven of 10. And so uh, I had I had some examples before me, uh, actually seven sons in a row. Right. And so uh, I had some examples before me. But um, the Army was the place that uh, that I saw the best fit and uh, the opportunity to go in and take a look at what policing uh, provides and and it gave me that opportunity to serve our country and so I, I it, it was it was the intent of serving the country but also to learn a skill that I might be able to use uh, after that service and that there was that was the, the, the choice and, uh, and and interesting is um, my family's always served in uh, in the uh, the role of non-commissioned 
And so I, I well, well, with the exception of one, I have a, I have an older brother who was, uh, who was commissioned in the Navy and then he actually switched to the army. So he, he saw the light as well. Uh, <laughs> and so, so I, I went in non-commissioned and after receiving my, my bachelor's degree actually. And, uh, but it, it was a, it was a great time. I got in there, the opportunity to learn, uh, new skills, most importantly, uh, the skills of leadership. And, uh, it, it gave me a, a, a trajectory, uh, to where I wanted to go, uh, from, from that point forward. I know that now you do some teaching about generational differences and, and I just have to chime in here that one of the biggest generational differences I see is I go around and I teach things because, uh, you and I both joined, uh, and our first commander in chief was Ronald Reagan. And uh, when you tell that to some of the young folks now, I'm pretty certain that many of them believe that he was president immediately after Abraham Lincoln. And because (laughs) because they kind of they look at us like we're ancient, but it really wasn't that long ago. But I agree with you. The leadership part uh, of the military service really is invaluable. But but at some point you did, you, you ETS, you got out. When did you make the transition to civilian law enforcement? Was it immediately after you got out of the army or was there a break there? No, there, there was a break. So from, I, I got out in 1990 and uh, which was an interesting time. Uh, it's uh, right after I got out was the first movement into uh, the Middle East. And yes. uh, I actually tried to get back in because uh, I thought, gosh, they trained me for this, and uh, <laughs> and here I am, I'm out. Now, now they're doing the things that I trained for. But uh, uh, there wasn't a need for. Uh, I signed up you know, through the IRR and said, hey, I, I'll go if you need me. I'm 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 willing to. But uh, but they never they never got to that point. Uh, as we know, the first uh, the first wave, uh, Desert Shield, I think, was the first wave, and uh, it went really fast. Uh, and so there was there was no need to to pull anybody back in, um, but I did when I got out. I went back to the university. I uh, one of the things I recognized in the military was if if I wanted to be the leader that I was hoping to be, that I needed to set myself apart. And uh, at the time, setting yourself apart meant getting higher education. Right? I had my bachelor's, but um, a lot of folks that were in leadership in policing had had bachelor's degrees, and so. Uh, it wasn't as common to have a master's degree. So I went back uh, using GI Bill that, I, that I'd earned. Uh, I went back and got my master's program done. Uh, and then in 93 is when I actually started in uh, civilian policing with the Knoxville Police Department. I had applied for about five different agencies at the time. And Knoxville was the first to call. And so I immediately uh, I took that uh, offer. About two weeks into that uh, academy, I got a phone call from my hometown. I was in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where I was born and raised. Got a call from them saying, "Hey, we're we're ready to hire you." And I said, "Sorry, guys, you're you're two weeks late." <laughs> and so, uh, uh, it actually it actually worked out really well uh, in, in my favor. Well, what's interesting, you brought up Knoxville uh, after you talked about Desert Shield because one of the best experiences I had. Uh, was during Desert Shield, I got to go to a University of Tennessee football game over one of our breaks, and they were playing Kentucky. And I remember uh, at halftime, Lee Greenwood came out, and Lee Greenwood saying, God bless the USA. And, and I know you've been there many times working, uh, but that 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 atmosphere and then during Desert Shield, I mean, there's 100,000 people singing God Bless USA. And then he went right from that right into Rocky Top. And I mean, it was it was a downright religious experience, to be honest with you. As as most experiences in Nayland Stadium will be, is uh, <laughs> especially now that we're back, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So. Unless something goes sideways in an Alabama game, then all bets are off. there's there's a couple topics that probably shouldn't come up in this episode today Uh, that would be uh alabama crimson tide and the united states marine corps uh because (laughs) (laughs) that's That's exactly right hey well you know you went to work for the knoxville police department and uh knoxville is one of those uh unique agencies that, that you, you work in a decent sized city, but when you work in a, a, a university setting and, you know, I, I'm, you're not, 
university police, but what goes on at the university has impact on the job. How did you find that? How did you find working in that type of environment as a young police officer, especially one that came out of the military, because that's a completely different environment. Absolutely different. It was, it was interesting. The, uh, the transition of uh, that, that responsibility was different and working in those areas. So I I actually trained one of my, my primary trainers was assigned in the, the beat, if you will, that the university is in for the city. And so I, I trained over there and I learned a lot from that, that officer. He, uh, Richard Giamarino, uh, we, we called him Guido. Uh, and, and Guido was a great officer. He, and, and being able to learn from him about how to interact, especially with college students, a different community, if you will. And so we, we I learned a lot of patience, uh, a lot of understanding, and uh, frankly, being able to, um, approach what our responsibility was of keeping people safe. And sometimes it was keeping them safe from their own bad decisions. And, you know, in college, a lot of people do that. They make really bad decisions (laughs) for themselves. And so, so it was learning that skill was really, I think one of the best things I got from it. And, uh, and it, and it continued to pay, uh, throughout my, my career. I, I actually, when I, when I was promoted, my first command job was over, the, the the west district uh, of the city and uh, and that was that included the university so i had to work very closely with the university police uh with with the the leadership at the university and uh and t- you know it, it was a different policing style that we used in that area because of understanding that the impact of our efforts and the impact of our actions could have long range uh, uh consequences for those that were attending the university. And so it, it, uh, it calls for a different skill. You bring up something that I, I like to talk about philosophically uh, because college kids often do make decisions that are bad. And as a parent, one of the things that I, I worry about is that they make a bad decision that has lifelong consequences and trying to protect them from that. I, as a country, as a society, it seems like we're getting to the point where uh, there was one book that I read. How, how long are these bad decisions going to serve as a millstone around the person who made them around their neck? I, I would be willing to bet that you probably think differently than you did when you were 18, 19, 20 years old. <laughs> Complete. And you're probably a different person. <laughs> and, and so I, I guess uh, philosophically, how long do we do we allow those things to negatively impact people's lives, those bad decisions? Yeah, I, I think you have to look at the uh, the reasoning for a person's decision. Right. I think and I've heard it said many, many ways. But the one that I think is is the best way to express it is, is it an error of the head or an error of the heart? And that's what you got to look at. It was the intention uh, there for what they were doing or were they just caught up in the moment? doing something that they, you know, it, it was about what you do in a moment with a group of people that, you know, that, that doesn't define who you are, just said, you know, who you were in that second. Right. And, uh, and, and that shouldn't, that shouldn't follow you for the rest of your life. I mean, you're not a, you're, you didn't commit homicide, you, right. You didn't rob a bank. Uh, you, you know, you made a, you made a silly collegiate, error, if you will, uh, that just happened to violate law. And so, you know, how do you how do you overcome that? And and I've seen many people do it, but you're right. Some some unfortunately don't get that opportunity to overcome those 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 mistakes. And uh, and and I think that's wrong, especially for those that we hire in law enforcement. You know, I I tell folks, I'm not looking for saints. No. Right. There aren't one. There's not a lot of them out there. Um, and so, and then two is what I'm looking for is people who have some, some, you know, a little, little bit of scrape here and there, um, because I want them to understand that most of what we do in law enforcement, uh, requires grace. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, we got to give that to those who come to work for us as well. It, you know, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not going to hire somebody that is, that is brutal or violent or, you know, makes horrible decisions, but, Hey, you made an error. I, hey, I, I have made my share of them throughout my my life. And uh, if I was held 
to the standards that that you hear people talk about uh, for those who who wear the badge, um, we wouldn't have anybody. Exactly. And so I think, you know, I, I want a high standard, but I also am practical and understanding that we're hiring humans from the human race and they're the most imperfect uh, souls that are out there. And uh, we, we have to understand that. And But what we're looking for is those who are able to have great character and the competence necessary to do the role of policing. Well, and ideally, uh, somebody who has the ability and desire to learn from their mistakes. Absolutely. So, so, and, and, and you brought up a, a great thing right here. And I was a, a trainer and a field training officer for a while. And one of the things I always tried to talk to officers about, even on something as, as I don't want to say is unimportant, but as low level as writing a traffic ticket. There are a lot of young officers that will make the decision on whether or not they're going to write somebody or give them a verbal warning by looking at somebody's driving record. And I always cautioned them because if that's the measure of whether or not they're going to get a ticket or a warning, then there are certain people who will always get a ticket and there are others who will never get a ticket. And the people who don't have a ticket, it doesn't mean that they haven't been pulled over or they haven't violated the traffic laws. They just haven't been written a ticket. But if you base it on that, the history, then perhaps we're being unfair in the way we handle people. Unfair and prejudicial. I mean, frankly, it it is unfair. And um, you don't know why somebody wrote somebody a ticket. I mean, I have worked with officers who will write everyone, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, And I have worked with officers who write hardly anyone. Um, the ones I think are best are the ones that find that balance. The ones that understand that the connect and the contact is the context, right? And so when you, when you make that, that approach and you have that interaction, what I always decided when I, when I was doing enforcement on traffic was, is this someone who's going to learn from my opportunity to explain to them why I stopped them and why their behavior was dangerous? Or is it somebody that needs a ticket to understand that their behavior was dangerous. Exactly. And and I could I could get that through the conversation. But but the problem is we don't we don't have a lot of that conversation taking place. There's not the you know, I, I see you know, we talk about procedural justice. And I see procedural justice is simply the communication model that we all learned and, and most of us learned in, in college, but in high school they taught it as well. But it's a simple sender, receiver, and feedback. And if if you follow that simple communication process, then you learn everything you need to know and you and you will be able to tell if from their feedback, if they're getting what you're giving. Right. And so if I'm there and I'm telling them, listen, the reason I stopped you is because you were 20 miles over the speed limit. And that's a really dangerous act. Can can you know, do you can you explain to me why this was happening? And, and then if they if I can get from that communication that they get the seriousness of their activity and that there is some, you know, it, from that conversation that there is some uh, feel that that activity is, it was wrong and they're sorry for that. Then, Hey, I'm going to tell them yeah, as long as I check the record. And, you know, as uh, we had a saying, you know, trust everyone, but, but everybody gets run through. NCIC. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but uh, as long as they didn't have a, have a, a warrant that I had to take action on, then I would, I would wish them a good day, ask them to be very safe and careful and, and send them on their way. Now, if the feedback was that they weren't catching what I was throwing, then I'd go back and write the citation and, and let that be the lesson that they needed uh, to, to, to fix it. And so, and that is what I, I train, you know, future officers as well. in is, is just using that procedural justice model of communication. All right. So, so, so then let, let's take it a step further. Uh, it is my belief based upon my research and my, my experience that the way that officers treat the public is a direct reflection of the way that the officer is treated internally in an organization. And if we expect our, our officers to practice discretion, as you just described, and I couldn't agree with you any, any more than what you just described, uh, if there is no discretion, if there is none of that feedback, that communication, uh, when an officer does something that they shouldn't have done, 
and, and nobody takes the time. Hey, was was this just a one off? Was this a stupid thing they did in the heat of the moment? You know, but they recognize the seriousness of what just happened and, and you handle that appropriately. Or if we just hammer everybody, then we have to assume that the officer is going to hammer everybody. They come in contact with the public. And I think that goes against what we're trying to do as a profession. No, I, I, you're spot on there. So so the behavior in our training, the behavior in our processes, the behavior in our practice, all of that sends the message on how our officers are going to behave when they go out to the public. So, you know, one of the things we looked at in uh, Knoxville when I was chief is during the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson is I sat down with our, our senior team and said, you know, after we watched some of the, the video and the feedback and the information we were receiving, we started talking about, is there things that we are doing unintentionally to push that type of behavior that causes confrontation rather than reduces it? And what we found were things very, very important that we needed to change. And we did change. Number one was we, we were running the, the quasi military academy where, you know, you scream at everybody um, from the minute they walk in the door uh, and, and the whole mindset I get because I went through the military and I went through, you know, this same type of academy. The whole mindset was we're going to help you understand that you can handle stress and uh, that you are going to have this esprit de corps that will develop um, working with others in this in this level stress laden environment and build this esprit de corps and then you'll have discipline. Right. That's the mindset of that of that that military model. The problem is you're teaching a communication model that doesn't work. You're teaching a one way communication model. And the only way that a person can understand is if I scream at them and frankly, if I cuss them. That's the only way they're going to get it right. And, and you've been through it. I've been through it in the military, probably in your police training, the same thing. Um, and we had to, we, you know, so when I looked at that, I was like, guys, we're doing it all wrong. You know, we got to break from this. I, I'm not saying don't put pre- stress and pressure on them, but let's do it in different ways. Right. Um, we started looking at how they train Navy SEALs and there's no one raises their voice, not once in SEAL training. Nobody raises their voice because they don't have to. They put enough pressure on you without ever having to scream, right? And so I thought, you know, not that I train Navy SEALs, but <laughs> but what we learned from it was that's a professional way of getting across what we were trying to get across is stress and pressure to see how you perform under stress and pressure without having to do things that are teaching bad lessons. And so we, we moved away from that yelling, shouting, cursing, that, that model. And then we also moved toward a communication, as I talked about, the procedural justice communication model. And, and we had to do that internally so that we could see it happen externally. So you made a, a, a great point on that. And then and then discipline, even the discipline that we did, we talked about. Right. Um, I, 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 I kind of call it this is the way I talk about our discipline is, hey, listen, if it was an error that they made where they were trying to do the right thing. Right. What I call the error of the heart. Right. If they made the error of the heart, then you know what? I may have to what I and, and didn't literally do this, but we may have to punch you in the belly. Yep. Right. So the, the punishment's going to take a little bit of air out of you. Right. But it ain't going to kill you. Right. And now if it was a thought out, maniacal, <laughs> intentional <laughs> act, then then at, that's that's the error of the head. Right. That's where you thought about it. You intentionally had to to make a decision to do this in this manner because it was it was the wrong decision. You chose the wrong decision, the wrong path. Right. If that's the case, then, you know, as I said, I would cut your head off. Right. Yep. So then then again, not literally, but I would, you, you lose you lose your job on that. Right. And um, that's the way we handled discipline and still do it today is, listen, you know, we look at those errors of the heart, the errors of the head. And that also allows others in the organization to see what discretion really is. Right. So you're exactly right. It, the, the, the behavior that you want to model needs to come from within the organization so that that external behavior uh, is seen by the public. And and we're seeing we're, we're seeing problems of that now. Right. As oh. we deal with these 
these challenges, you know, that that uh, that most recently here in Tennessee Absolutely. that we've seen. Well, I, I, I hear you saying that. I've, I've heard Mike, I've heard Paul Hasselberger say the same things. How long does it take for this type of mentality to roll out nationwide to other agencies that may not have that same mindset and it takes them a little while to go, oh, okay, I see what you guys are saying. Gosh, that that's a great question. There's been, a, you know, I've been in the rooms in, in these conversations. So uh, one of the other roles I fulfill is I, I serve uh, with the International Association of Chiefs of Police on their executive board. So I'm the third vice president. What that means is in, in, you know, in 2025, I will be the president of this, this amazing organization that has over 32,000 uh, police leaders uh, throughout the world. Uh, 70 countries are represented in this, in this organization. And when we sit down and have these conversations, that's exactly what we talk about is how to multiply this. Because in the U.S. alone, you're talking 18,000 law enforcement agencies. And so the difficulty of getting all 18,000 on board is is the real challenge right but it doesn't take long to change it it's and and i think we're starting to see in in law enforcement at least the five, past five ten years with the changing of the guard if you will we have a lot of new police leaders stepping in and i think it's it's a good thing because a lot of these leaders have come from the same growth i have and from the same perspective of understanding that that we have and and i think we're going to start to see this really resonate as we're moving forward, at least in the rooms that I'm in, the conversations that we're having, everybody gets it, right? We, we just had a great meeting where we talked about police culture and the importance of, you know, assessing your culture and assuring the culture is in the right place um, and and how how vital that is. And, and it's being done nationally and internationally. We we had a we had an example from uh, the the uh, uh, in in Scotland where they've just done a major Scottish the Scottish police have just done a major cultural assessment and they're working through what they're they've learned and we can learn from that in, in the U.S. is let's do these cultural assessments let's take that information and see where it will lead us uh, in terms of understanding that policing today is much different than policing in the past. And, you know, we continue to change and we, we have that desire to change. So I think what we do is we just got to keep moving and keep keep having these conversations and keep seeing uh, the best practices highlighted so that people can learn from that. And, and, and it makes it easier for police leaders um, to to make those adjustments. Well, it, it, you know, it's one of those things where I, I truly believe that most of the police leaders that, that are a little bit reluctant or resistant to the change, it's because, hey, you know what? I, I've done pretty good in my career and, and that I, I was trained under the old style. So so obviously it worked and th that that's the way we're wired as human beings. But it, it's I'll always equate it back uh, it, when I was growing up, the, the NFL was a run heavy offense oriented league you know uh, every, every team ha had a tailback but you also had a fullback if you go and look at most nfl rosters nowadays they don't have fullbacks because it's not a it's not a run heavy league it has evolved the game has evolved and if you try to act like you did you would try to coach like they did back in the 80s you're probably not going to be very successful now we, we as a profession just have to and and perhaps we do it to ourselves we used we use uh, terminology and phrases like uh, best practices. And, and you know, I, I think that th that kind of sets us up to say, hey, well, if it's best, then we don't need to make improvements. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's an expiration date on best practices. Oh, absolutely. We had to be like the medical profession where they're constantly looking for better ways to treat, better ways to diagnose, better ways to diagnose early uh, and less invasively. Uh, we, we, we're getting there. But but like Brent said, it, it's like it just seems like it's painful. It's taken so long to make it happen. Yeah, it, and you're you're spot on. So the uh, as we all know, there are two things that that police officers hate. Right? They hate change, and they hate things to stay the same. Absolutely. Right. And so 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 what we got to do is is uh, we really we have to create catalysts within organizations. Right. And, and when you look at what a catalyst is, a catalyst, right, is that it is that interaction that causes change. Right. And so and that can be individuals. 
And so I think what we what we have to do is we have to open ourselves up to the mindset of individuals that are coming into organizations today and allowing them to come forward with ideas. And, and as was mentioned earlier in the show, I, I allow that in, in my organization here at TBI. I allow people to come in and let's let's try things. You know, we call it let's throw the spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. That's right? the that's thing that that the thing that about you that stood out to me is you said when you took the job, they said that the standard was perfection. And you said, well, then I I can't do that. That That's we have to learn how to do things and we have to fail in order to get better. And I thought that was that really piqued my 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 interest when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's exactly right. So what, what I was told was, you know, Hey, the standards perfect. I said, no, I, that's a, first of all, that's a low bar. That's a low bar perfection. It, it, one, we can't meet it, but the reality is if you're not trying, then you're not going to improve ever. And, and failure is part of improvement. You know, the, the major CEOs in this, in this country who've made billions of dollars will tell you that. Now they they have they have an advantage that we don't have in government, right? They can they can spend millions of dollars trying something and fail. I don't have that advantage, right? Because I'm dealing with taxpayer dollars. So so when we try something, we try to make sure first of all we contain cost, but but we also understand that trial is part of improvement. You're not going to be successful with everything, but if you don't try it, you don't know. And, and so not having that opportunity to try is, is critical. But uh, but no, you're right. I, I, uh, I, I've made it very clear right away is I, I'm I'm an imperfect human and I'm not going to be perfect. I can't work here. If perfection is the is the requirement. Um, and I, I have made my share of errors in, in almost five years now with the bureau. But uh, but we're still we're still moving strong. We're still going in the right direction. And we uh, I, I still think that we are one of the best agencies that uh, uh, that exists is the, the, the talent within this organization is unmatched anywhere else. And and they continue to do what I asked them to do. And that is let's we, we keep Tennessee in safe. Um, and we do that in a manner uh, that is respectful and, uh, and and responsible. Well, it, it's it, I liked how you used the, the word catalyst and, and how much better for us as a profession if that catalyst is internal, uh, because too all too often that that catalyst is forced on us. And it's painful when that happens. Uh, when you go and you look at some of these uh, agencies that are under consent decree with the federal government. And the and you talked about taxpayer dollars, the millions and millions of dollars that they are having to spend because this change is being forced on them. How much better off would they as an agency and how much better off would their community be if that change had occurred internally rather than have it uh, forced on them by some type of oversight? Well, they're not an oversight that doesn't know the internal workings of what we do. Exactly. They don't know what we go through. They don't know, they haven't walked in our shoes, right? And I don't expect them to, I, I'm, I'm not asking them, but I do want them to hear from us, right? And so I'm, I'm working with an organization right now um, that is that is trying to do exactly um, what we have always been seeking. And that is get the input from the law enforcement professionals before you start to force us to do things, um, it, you know, either legislatively or by policy, get our insight first so that we can help you craft that and draft that. It, it's it's typically been outsiders who think they know and they've read a book or two and they want to be able to show us how we should be doing the job that we're doing without our input. And, you know, when we see what they, they suggest as reform and we sit down and we go, well, did you think of this? You, you get this blank stare back from them, right? Um, we work very closely with uh, the current administration and the former administration in, in, in the, on the national level. So both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, we've worked with um, on police reform matters. And when they bring things up and we start to push back and say, wait a minute, have you thought of this? You, first, you get the blank stares. Um, there are a lot of smart people in the room, much smarter than me. That are that are in the room. Um, their their degrees will tell you so. <laughs> but, uh, but but we have these conversations, and you say, "Did you think about this?" And they're like, "Oh, well, no." Well, no, because you're not a practitioner. 
you aren't in the trenches. You you don't get how this impacts on on the full picture. And so um, so again, I'm working with an organization right now that uh, it's called the Justice Justice Action Network Foundation, and what they're trying to do, what they have done is pulled together a, a, a group of us from throughout the country, law enforcement leaders, and, and getting our insight on the major topics that impact law enforcement and how we can make creative and important and impactful reform actually happen. Uh, that would not be seen as an outsider coming in and forcing something on law enforcement, right? But would, is actually informed action from those in the field who understand it um, and so I, I'm, I'm excited about the effort uh, and, and where they're going to go with that. But we'll we'll have a report coming out. Um, I, I know somewhere toward the end of the year as we've been working through, uh, we've had a couple meetings online so far. But it's I'm excited about what they're doing because it will inform decision makers. It's going to inform governments. It's going to inform uh, uh, organizations, even those even those oversight organizations. It, it will inform them on things to consider before you take these movements. If we don't do that, it's akin to a doctor coming into a room where you're sitting and no one's taking your blood pressure, no one's gotten your temperature, no one's gotten your medical history. And the doctor comes in and makes a diagnosis without even speaking to you. And yes. it's, it may be well-intentioned, but it's, it's not going to be effective. And I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, we, we've got organizations that are sick, to use your analogy, right? But they're not they're not terminal. Right. Right. And so let's not come in and fix them like they're terminal. Let's 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 go ahead. Let's treat the let's treat the symptom. Yes. And and that's where we need to be is let's talk about how do we treat the symptoms. Right. And uh, now we may not all agree on what the symptom is, but at least we can sit down at a table and have a conversation about what it is well, and, and the focus has to be on the long-term health of the organization not not not, not just not just that that what's going on right now because it's deeper than that yes yeah yeah and and not only i mean organization is critical but but the profession as a whole absolutely um you know i think that is the the, the piece that uh we don't always consider we 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 look at organizations as 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 unique and independent to themselves and that but we're not always considering what is the overall impact to the profession uh, as we make these these movements and decisions and so i think that's the that's a critical piece we have to always consider well if we could right now i want to transition to to your uh your current role as the director of tbi and uh knoxville it is it had to be a blast with everything that was going on there but being able to work at a statewide level has to has to change your perspective just a little bit uh, it, it, tremendously right um knoxville was a great uh, opportunity for me i had i had a, a great time in knoxville i was privileged uh had had such great great mentors and and uh leaders that that developed me and, and poured into me and 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 provided me what i am today and so i uh i, I love knoxville and it was it was a great opportunity this opportunity was even uh even more amazing to be able to come into the state um to to lead this organization I, you know i mentioned how how amazing it is first of all but uh the perspective is much different right our our role is um much larger uh we have the 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 responsibility and and frankly the you know my position is considered in the state the top law enforcement position in the state right and so um I, i'm the highest uh law enforcement official for the state of tennessee I, which means I, I have full law enforcement power. Um, you know, I can go out and still make arrests and, and, and all of that. Um, so it, it's a that, that doesn't that doesn't fall on me as as a very small thing. Uh, it, it's it's critical. And, and this organization unique to any other like us. Right. So when I look at my peers throughout the other states in the, in the union, uh, we are the only uh, investigative state investigative organization that is independent. We're an independent autonomous agency. All the others either fall under the Department of Safety in their state or under the Attorney General's office in their state. Well, here in Tennessee, the TBI is 
autonomous, independent from all of those organizations. We are a unique standalone. Um, matter of fact, I don't, I'm, I'm not in the cabinet and I don't report to a cabinet position. Um, I actually do not report to the governor. <laughs> so I don't report to anyone in the state. Once appointed, uh, my role is to assure the safety and the operation of this organization and to run it in the manner uh, that it is set to do based on law and, uh, and, and our mission and vision. And so it is, it is, it is much different and uh, it, it's the best. And I'll tell you then, and, and, and my peers will tell you this as well. It's the best job in the country. <laughs> so uh, it, it is, it is just, it, it's, it's fulfilling, but it also is, you know, I get the weight that comes with it. I, I, I say all the time, I don't, I don't report to anyone, but I'm accountable to absolutely everyone. I'm accountable to the great, residents and citizens of this state. I'm accountable to the, the legislature uh, over here in Nashville. I'm accountable to the governor's office. And so I understand my accountability, uh, but I also understand the, the high level of responsibility that we hold. And that is to assure uh, that, that we are there to partner with our, our local, state and federal organizations to provide resources that they may not have. Um, and frankly, uh, to hold everyone accountable. Uh, and when I mean everyone, it's all the way up to the office of the governor and to assure that they are following uh, the, the the standards and the laws that are in place. But but keeping the people of the state of Tennessee safe, uh, and you talked about the weight of your responsibility, I would imagine that uh, Christmas Day here recently, you felt that weight in a completely different way. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So so Christmas Day 2020 is a day that uh, obviously we won't forget, um, you know, the phone call. As a matter of fact, the way I learned about it was was different. So I uh, one of the things here in Nashville we have is what's called the Nashville Security Council. And it is a, a group of us in law enforcement here in the Nashville area and all of the major uh, headquarters organizations. Right. So your uh, your places like uh, Bridgestone and uh, Amazon and um uh, uh, the health organizations. And so all of these major headquarters, corporate uh, organizations belong to this council. Well, Christmas morning at uh, about 6.30 a.m., I got a text from uh, on the council text thread uh, from Amazon. And their head of security text and said, hey, I don't know if anybody knows what's going on, but it's being reported that the front windows of Amazon in downtown have been blown out. So my thought is somebody's attacked Amazon. <laughs> so uh, so I, I immediately called my deputy director and said, hey, can you tell me what's going on in downtown Nashville? There's been an explosion. He said, I haven't heard, but just a moment. So he he calls me back within a, a matter of minutes and said, yeah, there's been a been an explosion down on second half. And he said, we got folks in route. And, um, and so we started immediately uh, in our operational mode at that point, right? So this is now interesting. I, I was in East Tennessee visiting family. And as a matter of fact, that morning it snowed and I was out on the uh, on, on our hill at our house in East Tennessee and, and taking it, we, we'd, we'd taken a couple of rides down the hill in the snow <laughs> on Christmas morning early. And, uh, and, and so as soon as this kicked in, it was one of those where I had to go into work mode and you know, and explain to the family, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I've got to leave. Um, it's time to get back to Nashville. We got we got something really major going on here. Can I pause there? Just can I pause there real quickly? Yeah. Because that brings in a human element. How does how does that mindset shift? And how does your family deal with that? Because there you are, it's Christmas morning, you are with your family, and all of a sudden, it's I've got something major I've got to deal with. How do they yeah. react to that? Well, they get it. I mean, we at that point, 27 years uh, in this business, right? And uh, well, 30, 31 years at that point with, with my military time, but but 27 years of them understanding that there are days where uh, where I'm going to have to go, right? And uh, and and do what I get paid to do. Uh, what, what brings all the presents under the tree? <laughs> so, yeah, with Santa's help, obviously. Yeah, right. But uh, uh, yeah, so uh, but. Uh, but they get it, you know, they, they understand it. And, uh, and so those, you know, fortunately in, in, in our families, they, they understand that when, when the balloon goes up, it's up and, uh, we have to then transition. And, um, and so, 
so we did that. And so as I'm on my way back to Nashville, that's where I have my conversations with our team, uh, conversations with FBI, uh, ATF, uh, the the, um, uh, the folks in Metro Nashville. We were all having open conversations about where we are, what we were trying to accomplish and, and what we were trying to discover. At that point, we, we had no idea what we were dealing with. You know, we um, you know, it went everywhere from believing that we were under attack by terrorists to uh, ultimately what we learned was a very uh, very public suicide. And that's one thing that uh, I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, when you're talking about a case like this, uh, what are some of the challenges that, that you face working with all these other agencies? Because you've got a whole bunch of people with, 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 with their fingers in the pie. Yeah. Well, so so I'll tell you first, the first the best call that I had was with the SAC from uh, uh, the FBI. So Doug Karneski, uh Doug called and he wanted to know what we were doing at that point. Um, now, understanding the landscape, domestic terrorism is a original jurisdiction for the bureau. So the, the TBI. And so we were well prepared to come in and, and do what we needed to do, working with our partners. Um, as Doug uh, and I discussed it, uh, Doug said, well, we, we're going to we're going to take this one, I think, um, because there was a feel maybe it was larger than uh, than just simply a domestic case at that point. And uh, and now. I exhaled and was like, whew, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, so the level of it really got better at that point because he was taking charge. So, um, but we were clearly all working in this together. So I, I, I to tell you, so it, it actually, law enforcement in, in Tennessee is amazing. We we work together better than anywhere else in the country. I, and I know that from talking to my peers throughout the country. It, it is on all levels, local, state, federal, we the lines are blurred. We we work very closely together. We understand the need to work together, um, and it and it and it showed during this incident when we got to the command post and the conversations and the communication that was taking place. Everybody was there to help out each other. Nobody there was no egos in the room, which is always critical. So no egos in the room, and everybody wanted to provide resources where they were needed. And we put teams together that were multi-jurisdictional, multi-faceted in terms of the, who was on the teams. Uh, when we sent investigative teams out, they had they had TBI, FBI, Metro Nashville, HSI. I mean, everybody was on that team so that there wasn't any communication issues so that everybody was hearing the same thing and reporting back the same thing to their organizations. And we were all in sync. We were even we were having two briefings a day, and during those briefings, um, critical information was being shared, and even to the point that it got a little uncomfortable because information started leaking. Now, ultimately, we learned the leaks didn't come from within. Uh, there was there were some external things happening that that created leaks, but um, but the sharing didn't stop, and and I attribute the FBI was great in that they didn't stop even when it hurt. They didn't stop sharing. And that is not normal. That's not common. And so it was amazing at what, at what happened there. And, and, it, uh, and, and I have shared that with the director of the FBI as well and, uh, and just told him that that's the model. You, you all need to get to that point with every agency, every, every home office that they have. They need to be able to do that is when you sit down and you're engaged in these types of incidents and these investigations that calls everybody to come together got to keep sharing even when it hurts i have to imagine that that your experience in knoxville and, and your coordination that had to be done uh with the university police and with the university itself and and even with some state agencies and maybe even federal agencies for football games because th those yeah. football games are, are big events i mean and if you're talking about a potential terrorist uh, uh target uh, that that's certainly one of them that had to come in incredibly beneficial to you in, at a case yeah. like this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that was, it, it was, um, business as usual, if you will. Right. I mean, we, that was, that was what I was used to. I, I'm very much used to everybody coordinating and working together, uh, to, to carry out, as you said, I mean, when you put 102,000, uh, in a, in a football stadium, um, it is a target rich environment and having everybody on the same page, working, looking for the same things, uh, working together, sharing information. It, it was it was absolutely a blueprint to moving into these types of 
of, of challenges and and uh, and it certainly helped tremendously i love the term that you just use right there business as usual and, and i'm gonna go on a little sidetrack here that's what training should make uh, our officers feel when they're out there on the street that this Absolutely. is business as usual that this doesn't stress me as much because i've been here before and i've done this before in a training environment i know how to handle it so that i don't overreact and because when we overreact that's when we start getting bad decisions made every time right experiential training is the key i mean the the the, the repetition of, of being able to be in situations that uh that you're going to face uh, out there. Now you're not going to be able to train everything that'll come, but you can sure train a lot of them. You know, we've, we've seen a lot. There's a lot of, here's the great part, especially now that we got body cams and all these other video opportunities. There's a great opportunity for us to use video for teaching law enforcement officers and teaching them best practice. I, I use best practices, but teaching, <laughs> <laughs> but teaching, but teaching the right way, right? I, I'll have to move from using that to talk about the right way, the current way, the most important appropriate way. Yeah, I, to, I, like, I love appropriate. I love appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah. you, but you know what though, it, it, you're, you're right. We have that tool available, but, but we, we too often destroy the opportunity to do it because we use that video uh, footage as a gotcha moment. And, yeah. and, and it, listen, it, you can go and do a game film on a football game and you're going to find where a lineman missed a block. Yep. And it, what, what you're hoping is that the lineman learns from it and doesn't miss the block the next game. And, and, and you know what? The coaches don't show just the bad plays. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so they're going to show you where you were successful, right? And why you were successful so that you'll repeat that behavior. And that's, and that's the piece that we got to work on better in law enforcement, I think, is, is making that library. I was just reading. There's an agency actually doing this. They're creating a library of the best that they do, right? So they're going through and reviewing their video and finding where they where their officers are doing things really well and right and they're and they're making they've made a library of these greatest hits if you will uh so that so that officers can go and review it and go ah, man that's and, and maybe even go to that other officer and say hey tell me how how do you thought of it this way how did you do this right Absolutely. so that so that learning goes on it's just like you know as a quarterback you want to sit down with peyton manning and find out all the tri tricks right um, it's the same thing, right? It's it's being able to go to those who have the skill and learning from them and, and see you can watch their film and then you can talk to them. And you, you see that in the football game. You've got the guys on the sideline when the offense comes off the field. What do they do? They start talking to each other. Hey, what did you see out yeah. there? What did I miss? And, and they learn from it and learning quickly. And, and that's probably yeah. something we need to do better as a, a profession is, is speed up the learning process. That yep. instead yep. of waiting for six months a year down the road how about we learn from it now we learn from it at a shift level at, at a call level rather than at, at at an industry level yeah i agree uh it's i, th I think you're spot on and those are the things that we just got to get and and the way that we're structured i think is what causes us at times to not be able to do it because we're we're stuck in these traditional structures that we gotta we gotta break that mode because we're not a traditional profession and so yeah. we we got to understand that right well we've got great traditions i'm not saying that but what i'm saying is we've got to understand that it's a learning profession we have to learn every day because things change every day police are responsible for society the safety of society right society never stays the same from moment to moment it's always changing and always adapting and we've got to adapt and change with it uh, well, you talked about the the, the sharing of, of information and communication uh, during the bombing uh, investigation. Uh, we have to do we have the breaking down those silos, those agency yes. silos, those knowledge silos. It only goes to make us better as a profession. And and, and not only, I mean, within our agencies, Absolutely. you know, we, we you've seen it and I've seen it. You have silos within the agencies. Yes. Right. The road you doesn't have, talk to the detective section. Detective section yeah. doesn't talk to dispatch. Yes. Yes. And see, that's so crazy. Right. And so there's no need for those divisions. Everybody. So another one of the things I do here in the bureau and, and, and with our teams. Right. I've got eight divisions 
within within the bureau. As I tell them, none of them are more important than the other. And and it's it, you know I, I get it. It's kind of like a parent telling the kids they love them all the same, but <laughs> but but the reality is uh, that they're not. Each of them need each other to function. You none of us are on an island. And that's the way it is in a, in a police organization. We all have to work with each other and communicate with each other to be better and and to be the best, if you will, at our job, to be the most effective and most efficient and most, and quite frankly, the most impactful. You've got to have all of the information to be to to, to do the job right. What 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 is lost is not only being able to do the job better, but doing that makes us safer. Say, say, safer yeah. in our organizations and safer the community safer as a result of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and I think it's probably what, what you've been talking about, what we've been talking about is even more evident, the more complex the situation. And, and because the bombing, uh, it wasn't just the explosion. It wasn't just yeah. the fact that this might be a terrorist incident. It's where the explosion took place because there were ramifications after the event that went on for a period of time because the, the explosion took place in front of an AT&T building. Yes, which which was the switch location for all communications in the southeast. And so so that really took on a on, on a on a level of trying to figure out what we were dealing with. Right. Because did this person know that and was the intent to shut down communications? And uh, and it did shut down communication. Yes, it did. Right. We had we had Internet shut down. We had radio shut down. I mean, it was an absolute mess um, for a few days until we could get things back up and running. And so um, that was another real concern during the investigation is, was this an intentional act against the communication network? Because yeah, uh, I don't know about you, but I don't know a whole lot about the communication network. And, and if I'm unwilling, though, to go out and talk to the people that do, uh, I, I might get that overreaction or I might get the inappropriate reaction to the event. Right. Right. And uh, I know a lot more now about it than I did uh, prior to December 20th, 25th. I can tell you. So uh, but yeah, it was uh, um, it, it was a learning experience. And, uh, you know, and. and that investigation, while you know there are a lot of speculation still uh, from it, um, because you know the one person that could tell us everything is no longer with us, right. and so um, you know what what we could only work from is some of the the uh, amazing large volumes of information that it, that was left behind, and uh, uh, trying to piece together what we could from that of a person who had a bit of a different mindset, you know, that, uh, that was a conspiracy theorist. Yep. And so there were a lot of things in there that, you know, who knows how much of it was acted upon. And, and again, ultimately we, we believe it was just a real, very, very, uh, public suicide. And, and there were some very interesting, uh, interesting aspects of the investigation that came out about, you know, lizard people and all of that. But, uh, it, uh, uh, probably had some play in the switch, uh, uh, you know, that him knowing that the switch was there, uh, it was probably more about the lizard people theory than it was anything else. Yeah, we're wrapping things up, but I, I have to ask you this question, but before I ask you, I want to let you know, I, I don't want to talk about the case itself, sure. uh, but I, I want to, you were recently tasked with, with leading the investigation uh, into the incident that took place in Memphis with the Memphis mm -hmm. police officers. And it, you've already talked about your responsibility, your accountability uh, is making sure everybody's doing things correctly. But what I want to ask you is more on a personal level, uh, because I get the sense from you that my, the time I spent with you in our conversation today, that you genuinely love and care about this profession. Absolutely. It's a heavy cross to bear when you are tasked with doing an investigation like that because of the damage that it does to our profession. How has that impacted you personally? And then how has it impacted you as a leader of a law enforcement organization? Yeah. So when that case came across and we started to look at it, we, we realized the level of implication that it would have on our profession uh, across not only in the U.S., but but uh, the profession of law enforcement in the world. 
um, you, you know, anymore, these incidents, they don't have just local impact. They have international impact. And I, and I know that because I've talked with our international friends uh, on this. And, and uh, so we realized immediately that we were dealing with a situation that was going to have really far reaching impact. Um, and man, it, you're right. It's tough. I, I love cops. I, I do. I think there's no nobler person than the person that raises their hand and puts a badge on to go out here and to do the most difficult task that any of us have. And that is to protect this, these communities um, and, and to, to experience the trauma that a, that a law enforcement experiences on a daily basis um, is not for uh, most humans. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, I, I love and respect that very much. Um, but with that, I also have always said um, it's not a place for bad actors. It's not a place for people who have uh, intent that is not good. And when you watch that video, uh, I did not see law enforcement action taking place. No, nope. um, there was there was no law enforcement activity happening there. Um, and, you know, I was very intentional that I did not call them law enforcement officers. And I continue to be intentional about that because they were not acting uh, in, in, in the capacity as a police officer in, in what they were doing in that in that video. And so um, it is it is a heavy burden and it's a heavy task to to step into. Um, but I think, you know, my comments that I made at, at the presser the day before the release of the video, um, I, I, they were very uh, straightforward and accurate. And that what what people were going to see uh, was criminal behavior and uh, and that uh, it was appalling. And it, and I think everybody can agree that those those are factual statements. Um, it, it's tough. I mean, we've we've had a couple more since then that we've had to deal with that uh, that we're still in the middle of right now. And uh, as a matter of fact, one uh, one be dropping here shortly uh, as we as we are having this podcast uh, you know, in, in, uh, in real time, uh, there's another one coming out of Shelby County, uh, that that's, that's a bit of a challenge, a video that's being released. You know, there was a video released recently from Knoxville. Um, you know, all of them show kind of really questionable behaviors when it comes to humanity. Right. And, um, so, so what I really hope that w- what happens as a result of this, that we're seeing is that there's this refocus on humanity, uh, you know, a refocus, not just within, but in law enforcement, but society. Yes. I think we're seeing a, a, a complete uh, crush of a lack of care for our fellow human. And, you know, to think that that, that doesn't impact policing is is not having an understanding of reality and so um my hope is that the lessons that we learn from these videos that are horrible that are that are concerning is that we understand that we've got a bigger mission and that is not only in policing we have a bigger mission in society and that is to start to 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 step back and and really start seeking our commonalities instead of our differences. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to honor one of our previous uh, guests here on the podcast, uh, Paul Hasselberger. Uh, Paul doesn't think that we earn our explicit rating often enough. And so that this is for Paul. Uh, but David, when I saw you that week, and uh, to be very blunt, you look like shit. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah. I just, just completely yeah. exhausted and, and I, I could see the burden that you were carrying and, and I didn't know all the stuff that was going on, but I want to say thank you, uh, for the job that you have done, the job that you continue to do, uh, because we need people like you in positions that you're in to ensure the integrity of this profession. The profession's too important and it's too, and I agree. I think noble's the right term. So I want to say thank you for the work that you do because it definitely makes a difference. That, that's very kind and I'm honored. Um, and uh, and it, it does take a toll on us. As, as leaders, 
Um, you know, I think maybe people think we separate from it, but we don't. It's, uh, you know, there, there are lives being impacted and all of our decisions have those impacts on lives. And, and you can't, if, if you're, if you care and you can't yes. do that without it, without it having, having an impact. And, and you're right. I was, I was absolutely exhausted. Um, there were, there were long days, um, making hard decisions, um, and, uh, understanding the, the, the weight, uh, literally of the world that we were, that we were addressing. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I hope, um, and I hear that, um, that leaders throughout the world, were appreciative of the approach we took and um, and, and the outcome uh, that that uh, that at least early outcome uh, that has resulted. And so um, I, I'm, I'm proud of our team uh, because it's their work, not mine, that, that got this done. Uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm the face, I'm the, you know, the voice, but it's really the work uh, of the team that, that got this accomplished. And, I, and I'm proud of them. Well, well, as we talked about earlier, though, I, I'm a firm believer that the way that our people and organizations handle things is a direct reflection of how they're handled by their leader. And, and be, that, that, that speaks volumes about you uh, as a person and as a leader. That's very kind. Thank you, my friend. Well, I, I, as we're wrapping up the episode, uh, I would be remiss uh, because we just talked about some people who I, I agree with David. Uh, they may have been wearing a uniform, but they were not police officers. They were not law enforcement officers. They certainly were not acting in that capacity. Uh, I would be remiss if I left our listeners with, with a bad image of law enforcement. And so uh, what I'm going to do right now is, uh, as we're recording yesterday, Officer Andres Vasquez Lasso of the Chicago Police Department was killed in the line of duty while responding on a domestic call. And this police officer was responding on a call where there was a, a male that was chasing a female down the street and the male had a gun, but the officer still went. And the officer engaged uh, in a fur pursuit and during that pursuit, uh, rounds were fired and uh, this officer gave his life in the service of his community. And those are the stories that don't get nearly the attention they deserve. The, the story out of Memphis gets a lot of it and it, it goes on and on. So I want to end this by recognizing Officer Andres Vasquez Lasso for his sacrifice and for his service to the community. Yeah, the, the, um, I, I tell young people all the time, the closest you're going to get to being a superhero is coming into this profession. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need more, more coming into this profession. But uh, David, I, I really appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, I, I, I could tie up the rest of your day, but I won't do that to you talking to you. Uh, but hopefully we get to cross paths again. And uh, Brent, it was everything I hoped and more. Yeah, I was, uh, I was impressed when I got to hear him speak. He, he taught a class about generational differences. I learned a ton through that. If you, you get a chance to hear him speak on that, it, it, it's an eye-opening class that uh, that I learned a lot uh, from. So definitely, if you get a chance to hear him speak on that, do so. And uh, David, you've been nothing but kind to me and, and our team. And, and I know as busy as you are to take an hour out of your day to, to speak with us. Thank you for, for coming on the podcast. And we hope we can uh, talk with you again in the future. Absolutely. My honor. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate y'all having me and uh, uh, look forward to, to uh, having further conversations. Thank you so much. 